Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Mastermind.fm. Today with me I have my sister Gabriela and our special guest Joram Bronzema from JoramBronzema.com and he has also some other projects which we'll get into. I got into reading a lot of his articles based on an email referral that I got but when I went into his website I found it really interesting so I wanted to get him on the show to discuss how we can all build a sustainable portfolio and what are like the main components of that and how to make sure that we update it each year to make sure that everything is still relevant. So Joran and Gabby, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi guys. <laughs> so Joran, you can go ahead and tell us a bit about you and then we'll get into the questions. Sure. So uh, I am uh, 30 years old. I So originally I'm an engineer. So I studied computer science and electrical engineering, uh, but then like right after my studies, I, uh, I started a company with a friend of mine in uh, education, uh, so in education technology. So we created uh, a platform, which is um, like a, an alternative to PowerPoint, which is really focused for education, for, so for uh, secondary school students. And so over the last about six years, we grew it to uh, like now we have close to 1.3 million uh, students and teachers all around the world using it. And uh, so we initially started in Europe. So I'm, I'm from, I live in Belgium. Uh, we initially started in Europe, but then fairly quickly moved to the US because we couldn't find investors that were willing to fund us in uh, in Belgium. And so by moving to the US, we really managed to, to grow the company. And then about two years ago, I really started getting into investing because, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know that pension system is not really well suited for you. Traditional pension system, at least in Europe, are really good for employees. But if you're an entrepreneur or like a freelancer, you're kind of left on your own. So I wanted to take matters into my own hands. Um, and so I started, started getting into uh, investing. And so I quickly figured out that the best way to invest for the long term is what they call passive investing. So investing in, in index funds, not like trying to beat the market, not like trying to, you know, pick stocks and like, Every day reading the news and trying to like sell some stocks and buy others, but really just like investing a little bit of my savings every month through this fixed portfolio of index funds and just letting it grow over time, no matter what the market does. And one thing I realized is that of all the books I read, there was so much focus on American investors. So, you know, you read all about like, you know, Jack Bogle and Vanguard and you read, you read about ISAs and Roth IRAs and and it was really hard to find information that was useful for European investors and let alone for Belgian investors because, you know, things like taxes are, are crucial when it comes to investing. You know, you have to really get the details right, you know, what funds you have to buy. And, and in the end, you're talking about your, your savings. So if you make a mistake, it can be quite costly if you don't figure it out in soon enough. And so that's why I started writing about my experience on my personal blog. So what you mentioned, you're on Bransma.com. Um, so I was really trying to, to help the Belgium and like the, the European investor in general. And from that, going through the whole experience, I actually realized that it was still really hard to start investing if you want to do it by yourself. Like you have to read a lot. You have to acquire a lot of knowledge. Uh, all this knowledge is, is like spread out. You also have to like have a certain confidence in yourself that you can take the right decisions. And so that's why I started Curvo, 
with my co-founder from the other company. So just to retrace a bit your journey, once you, did you say that you moved to the US? You had to move to the US physically? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was an important move to get the startup growing and get yeah. investment. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so then when you started to invest, was it because you sold the company and had this lump sum that you needed to invest or something different? No, no. I just, you know, I got to a point like when we were like starting the company, I didn't have any money at all. <laughs> Hardly <Yeah>. any, uh, <laughs> any salary or very low salary, just to, just enough to get by. And we reached a point where we did have, you know, not a crazy salary, but we, we had enough money that we can save some on the side. And so that's how okay. I, that's when I, the moment was like, okay, I need to do something with it. I'm asking because this is a much more typical scenario than the people having a lump sum that they yeah. don't know what to do with. You know, yeah, most yeah. of us have yeah. something saved and we want to make that work. Yeah. So switching to Gabby, what's in your head when you think of investment? Well, I've been employed for around four years now. So I've been saving up mm -hmm. a bit on the side. But I'm quite overwhelmed, to be honest. Where to start? What to go for? Is it like bonds or stocks or P2P? So there's so much that you can choose from. Gabby, how, how old are you? You're, I'm 29. I think it's a problem that many people in their 20s face. You know, I remember when I started off myself a few years ago, it wasn't that long ago. I had really no idea based on my education. Mm -hmm. which did include actually a business degree, but really how to invest was something that I never really learned. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn on my own. And as you said, most of the material, the books I was reading, the blogs, they're all focused on the US. And luckily, in the last maybe three, four years at max, I've seen a big kind of drive in Europe, blogging and Possibly because of the European Union and like things becoming more harmonized in terms of taxes and people, more people speaking English. Mm -hmm. There's more mixing, more migration. So this is all positive. Uh, before we get into like the portfolio and all that, you mentioned that the pension is not good enough for us. Why do you make the distinction and what do you mean by the pension might be good for the salaried people, but not for freelancers? Yeah, I think so. When employee, like you get a, like you get a certain net salary, like after taxes, but a lot of the taxes that you kind of implicitly pay go towards your, your pension. Whereas if you're a freelancer, okay, you may earn a bit more money, but you're kind of left on your own. I mean, this depends per country, of course, but like in general, the money that you save up that the state basically saves for you is a lot less than if you're an employee. And then secondly, I, we've been talking about the pension crisis for the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years, which I, you know, I don't want to sound like a doomsdinker, but I'm, I'm a bit scared of it for like our generation because the demographical changes are quite significant. Like to give an example. So now in Belgium, 25% of the people are above 65. So 25% of people are, are retirees. And by 2060, that will be 40%. So that's a very big thing. Yeah. And the problem I see is that pension, like the pension crisis is a bit like climate change in that the effects are very slow. And then I'm scared that by the time it will be, people will start to realize it will be really like kind of too late or not too late, but like the, the measures that will have to be taken will be so drastic. That'll be really painful. And so that's why, you know, I want our generation to be better prepared and a way to be better prepared is to kind of be more independent from the state or like from a state supplied pension and save more for your own. I guess it's hard to imagine in the future, 
a whole generation being plunged into poverty by adequate pensions. Perhaps we can look at other countries which are already in that situation. Russia is not very good with pensioners, for example. All these like less developed or ex-communist countries, they're kind of in a tight situation when it comes to pensions. And yeah. basically, they just have enough money to buy a loaf of bread and something to drink and some milk, and that's it. And that's, I think our generation has become accustomed to quite a good quality of life. And I think when we think ahead and see the problems we could have with a lack of income, I think we'll take the hit even worse than previous generations would have. Yeah, for sure. And I hope, you know, I hope that it's up to the political systems to do something about it. But then, you know, like there's more and more people who are getting older. So more and more of a massive voters who will vote against kind of political yeah. change. Uh, so the odds are against it, unfortunately. All right. So for getting the government, if we think for ourselves, which is always, in my opinion, the best way to do things financially, mm -hmm. how do we solve this problem for us? I think the best way is to, yeah, first of all, to start saving money, really, from when you get your first job, pretty much. I think that's, I mean, in the end, that's, that's really the core. You know, you can, in the end, investing is a way to maximize the return from your savings to make it, the money work for you. But, you know, starting to save money, even if it's on savings account, is already a big step forward compared to, you know, spending all your money and kind of not thinking about it. Let's just like take a case study. We know that in the 20s, people are not really thinking about such stuff typically. So let's not take the ideal scenario. What about somebody wakes up when they're 30 and decides that they want to avoid the problem that we're mentioning? Mm -hmm. And he, he does have some few thousand saved up. How does he get started? Does he immediately go for, for diversification or does he just start filling up this portfolio one by one? How does it work? And how does the portfolio that you chose work? So like when you just speak about passive investing, so index investing, you're really speaking just about two asset classes that matter. One is equities and one is bonds. So equities, those are stocks stocks of companies. There are other asset classes which people mention from time to time, like commodities or gold, but they have they each have problems which make them not really suitable for really like long-term investing. And so it's really about so bonds and, and equities. And in the end, the most important decision you're gonna make when you start investing is uh the ratio of the portion in your portfolio that's allocated to bonds and how much you allocate to equities. So in general Equities are more volatile, so they're considered more risky, which means they can go up, you know, in a month's time, they can go up 20%, but they can also go down 30% in a very short period of time. But then the advantage of them is that over the long run, you get a much higher expected return. Bonds are like the opposite. So they're much less volatile, but also you get much less return from them. And so... In theory, you would say, oh, then I'm going to go, you know, all the way equities. Why would I even bother? And that's where the psychology of the investor really becomes important. So, you know, they, if you start reading about passive investing, they always talk about like risk tolerance and risk appetite. And it's really like, you know, how are you going to react when your portfolio goes down like minus 50%, which actually happened like 10 years ago, you know, during the financial crisis. Uh, equities literally went down 50% in a couple of months time. And so, you know, from a rational point of view, you should even invest more in those times because the stocks are cheap. Everyone's like Warren Buffett has this famous quote, 
says, uh, be greedy when others are fearful and then be fearful when others are greedy, uh, meaning you have to invest more when things are cheap, when people are scared and like do the, the reverse in the other case. And so that's why you kind of want bonds in your portfolio to, to compensate for this high volatility. But th- the problem with that, I, it sounds great in theory. The problem with that is that it's kind of impossible to know. <laughs> It's a very abstract concept. Like, what's your risk tolerance? Like, you know, you might think of yourself like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a freelancer. I like taking risks or like the opposite. But like in the end of the day, I think, you know, most people I talk to have like our generation or my generation. We haven't really, we weren't investing during the financial crisis. Like we were too young to be investing. And so since then, the market's only been going up. So it's easy to say like, yeah, I, you know, I'm risk tolerant. Like I can deal with that. Yeah. I find that to be an empty question. You know, like when I started investing, first thing I did was I went to a stockbroker because I knew nothing Uh and I walked in and he's like, yeah, the the three different portfolios I can offer. What's your risk tolerance? What does that (laughs) even mean? Yeah. How can I tell you what does, like, how can I judge? And I just walked out because I couldn't decide. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's really hard. And I mean, there are like psychological, like tests you can do. There's like questionnaires, you know, very, like Vanguard has a questionnaire, for instance, which you can do a line, just like, you know, 10 questions. And it, it already gives you a better, you know, a better answer than just like figuring it out yourself. But in the end, yeah, it's still, you have to, I think you have to really live through it, including myself. Like, I don't know about myself. Like, I think I quite risk tolerant, but like, maybe I'm not at all, you know, <laughs> I don't know. We were talking about pensions. Um, a lot of my friends right now are questioning whether they should go for pension funds or maybe investing in stocks like you're doing. Yeah, it, it depends. Uh, it really depends per country, I think. So maybe we should define what a pension fund is and how it works as well. Yeah, so probably what you mean is like a government subsidized sort of uh, pension system. Um, I don't think so. I think it's more like you go to a bank and they set up a system for you. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like a private pension. Yeah, yeah. private pension. Oh, like through through a bank without any like, because like a lot of countries have a a sort of like semi-private, semi like a private fund basically, but with like fiscal advantages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we so don't that, have that in Malta. That is that what you mean, or no? We don't have that in Malta. Okay, I, that's the like what they have in the UK and yeah. in the US. Yeah. No, there's, I think what your friends are doing, Gabby, is just signing up to a private pension. Yeah. With a bank or a stockbroker. Yeah. I mean, uh, th- I'm quite skeptical of banks, <laughs> of banks offering investment funds because the, the main reason being is that the products that banks sell you are mostly actively managed funds. And so as opposed to, so in passive investing, you invest in index funds. So there's no managers trying to like pick the right stocks and active funds. There's, you know, uh, all these analysts who are analyzing industries and, you know, reading quarterly reports all day long and trying to, to make decisions based on the information that they get. And they're like experts and it sounds really good. And we explain like that, but like research has shown that 80% of, of active funds don't beat a simple index. And the downside, the main downside of the active funds are their fees. Because they have active managers who are, uh, who need to be paid. They do a lot of trading. So they have a lot of transaction costs. They have a lot of, you know, taxes depending on where they are. And so when you like count, take into account the fees, they actually perform, perform a lot worse than passive funds. And I also, what I don't like with these kinds of funds is that the manager has an incentive to trade because 
he's trying to reach a certain target every year. And when you have a long-term portfolio like that, you almost don't care what happens short-term. So why would you be trading and raking up the fees for what? So the, the, the manager gets fired if he underperforms on that particular year. But there are years when like you can do nothing. Yeah. You have to accept that your portfolio has gone down, but long-term it will probably go up. Okay, so, but another thing that, like, when you start doing your own research, the problem is that there's so many books and everybody seems to have found the answer. They promise you the answer. So this is something that I, I liked from your website, is that you chose the a particular portfolio strategy, which mm-hmm. you can talk about. Mm-hmm. But then I think part of the process was that you backtested mm-hmm. these strategies, right? So that makes it like a scientific way of choosing. Take yeah. out the doubts. Yeah. So t- tell us more about that. Yeah. So as I was saying, like at the very beginning, so I, I started writing, like writing articles about my experiences and something I got really interested in is exactly what you say is like, you know, you read all this stuff, like, oh, you should, you know, go for this, uh, this portfolio or like that portfolio. And I was just interested in, well, what, what's the kind of return I can expect you know, with my, when I translate this portfolio aimed for the US market, if I translate this into European funds, what can I expect as a return? And so I started looking for tools that basically could do that, that had that data and that had like the, you know, the historical data of, of the funds. And I couldn't really find any. For European. For European. Yeah. For European funds. So I started, uh, I just wrote my own. So I went to, so, I'm, you know, as I said at the beginning, I'm a, a good engineer. Would. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't exist. Just build your own. And so, you know, it was very basic at the beginning, uh, you know, just only with the funds that I had in my portfolio, it was actually, it still is very tough to find the historical data of all the indexes. But yeah, so it was kind of interesting. So every, you know, one blog post, I just looked at the, the return and then another blog post, I kind of took the, the volatility into account. And so looked at the sharp ratio and then another one I looked at, like analyzed all different like rebalancing strategies. And so as I, you know, wrote a new article, I kind of extended the tool and made it a little bit better and a little bit a little bit nicer. And then one bit I was like, yeah, this is actually really useful for anyone. I'm sure like I'm not the only one with, you know, who's with these questions. And so uh, back in uh, July 2019, I released it. I kind of cleaned it up, like added a, a nice UI to the thing and then released it. So on, uh, on ba- it's called backtest, backtest.curva.eu. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was really interesting actually to see and to analyze what the impact is, for instance, you know, changing your, your allocation from like 80% equities, 20% bonds to like 50% equities, 50% bonds, you know, like what's the worst year I would have experienced? What's the best year I would have experienced? You know, what's the worst month I would have experienced? How long was my longest period of loss? All these, all these questions, which I think are super important, like, because they test the psychology of the investor, I could now answer. And yeah, I mean, it's the, the tool is, is getting, uh, it's getting some traction. Like every week, there's more and more people that are using it. So I'm, I'm really happy. And how long were you going when you were performing these tests? So at first I went, uh, as far as I could go back, which was probably like 92, I believe. So some indexes go back like way far, like MSCI world, for instance, goes back. The data is there for like tills. Uh, from 69. So more index, like other indexes have been created more recently. The problem with that is I was testing in US dollar back then, but then, uh, then I realized like, actually that's, you know, there's a big like currency 
aspect that I'm not taking into account. And so then I translate everything to Euro, which meant I can only go back to like, uh, what was it like January 1st, 99 or something when the Euro was yeah. first like introduced. And so that's where as, as far back as it goes, like the oldest indexes on backtest go back to mm-hmm. the start of the Euro. And so what was the winning portfolio mix? I think it's called the permanent portfolio. Is it that or something else? Because I've been hearing a lot about the permanent portfolio, but yeah, I mean, the, yeah, that, that's a, that's very popular. I mean, in the end, like, you know, there's no perfect portfolio. Uh, that's the whole thing. But like, what I would suggest, like, to most people now is simply like, uh, an all world equities. So either like FTSE all world or MSCI ACWI, which is all country world index. So one of those two indexes, they cover the entire world. So developed markets and emerging markets. And then for the bond part, it's either a, um, a European government bond fund or a global government bond fund where the currency is hedged to euro. I don't know how technical you want to get. <laughs> I don't know if I should start explaining that. Well, I'd like to get into a bit like you mentioned two stocks. Could you like mention them again and sure. why we should chose those two? Yeah. So when you invest in, you know, index funds, well, the, the core idea behind it is, is diversification because it's really based on the belief that you cannot pick out winners consistently year after year. And so a second observation is that most of the market returns are made only by a couple, like only a small percentage of stocks. I think it's like something low, like 4%. So 4% of all stocks in the world make up most of the returns in a given year. And so the consequence of not having a winner in your portfolio is way higher than having a couple of losers. Like it's okay to have a couple of losers as long as you have those, you know, 4% winners. And so that's why it's important to have as many companies as, as you can in your portfolio. And so both these indexes that I mentioned, uh, FTSE, All World and MSCI, ACWI. I hate all the acronyms in finance, but basically they have, I know the MSCI index has I believe over 2000 companies in it from across the world. And the other one, I think the FTSE has even more companies in it. Why do we choose two? Uh, no, it's Why either. It's one? either. You have to pick one. Either, either. Yeah. Yeah. It's either. It depends on the cost of the funds. Uh, it depends which funds are available to you, you know, depending on the country you are in. But then in practice, when you look at the, the returns of both, like they're pretty much equivalent. So you can't go wrong with any of them. And like when we say we're going to buy this index, first of all, I think there's a difference between the technical index, what an mm-hmm. index means and what a fund does. Yeah. So the fund tracks the index. So maybe yeah. you could briefly explain what that means and sure. uh, how do we actually buy them? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so an index is essentially a set of rules that say which stocks are in the index. So, I mean... Uh, it's kind of hard to explain. The best way to explain is for an example. So for instance, MS, S&P 500, it's a very famous index. It's like the 500 largest companies in the world. It's what you hear in the news every day. It's yeah. gone up, it's gone down. You hear that or like your next 100 uh, is in Europe. So basically for the S&P 500 every year, you know, the Standards & Poor, which is the company behind S&P 500, they say, oh, this year, like, you know, these companies are out. And like these companies are big enough to go in. Based on what? Do they have 
market cap or yeah i mean that depends for index in the case of s&p 500 is market cap for the two indexes that the world equities it's also market cap uh but some indexes have like you know different criteria but the most common ones are is definitely market cap yeah okay and so so that's an index so an index just says like these are all the stocks in our index and then there's a fund which actually buys the stocks in the index and then packages all that into a fund and then you can buy shares of the funds as an investor. Okay, so the fund has a, a PDF or stuff like saying why you should buy that fund. It comes with a certain fee attached. And so what's the difference then? What are the actual differences? If, if both say, or many others say that they're both all tracking the same index, mm-hmm. how do they differ? Yeah, so, so cost is, is a big one. So cost for index funds is measured by, they call it the total expense ratio. So it's the annual fee that you pay to the fund provider for them, you know, doing the administration and doing all their management of the fund. And so it's a percentage of the total invested amount. So typically, like now, if you invest in a, in an index fund, like one of the ones that I mentioned, you're not going to pay more than probably like 0.8%. So 0.8%, which means that concretely, like if you invest a thousand euros, then you're going to pay uh, 80 euros a year in fees. Correct, right? No, 80 euros, sorry. 80 euros. 80 euros. And when we think of fees, we should also think of the compounding effect of fees when comparing to, say, the private funds that we mentioned earlier. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, so so fees, every, everything that's fees, you know, is money that you're not getting as an investor, but that's going to someone else. And in the end, yeah, it's, it's like with anything that's compounding, with anything that has an exponential growth, it can also go the other way. Okay, the fees are different, but what makes them different? I mean, we could, could we just say, let's buy the cheapest one, or are there any other considerations to keep in mind? Yeah, there's, there's uh, I mean, there's a couple of distinctions. And another important one is the way the interest and the dividends are used. So if you buy a stock like If you buy a share of a company, you become co-owner of the company. And that means you get a right to a dividend. So when the company makes a profit, they can choose to distribute part of that profit to the shareholders, which includes you. So you get, you know, a small amount every, every year. And so because you are through the funds, you're also owner of, of stock. You also get a dividend. And there's a distinction in the funds being made there. So fund can be either distributing or accumulating, depending on what they do with the dividend. So in the distributing funds, you get paid out the dividends in cash on your account. And in the accumulating version of the funds, the dividends are directly reinvested into the index. So you don't perceive any cash, they're just directly reinvested. And so the distinction is important, mostly for tax reasons. In a lot of countries in the EU, there's a tax on dividends. So for instance, in Belgium, uh, there's a 30% tax on dividends. So if I invest in a distributing fund and I get 100 euros a year in dividends, I have to pay 30 euros to the state. So I only get to keep 70%. However, if I get 100 euros through an accumulating fund, so I never really see this 100 euros, it's directly invested then I don't have to pay the tax because it never reaches my account. It never reaches, you know, my bank. And so some, for some countries, it's, it's better to invest in accumulating funds. Other countries, it's better to invest in distributing funds. Right. 
And that brings me to thinking about the domicile as well of the fund. So like mm-hmm. when I invested in Apple, I on the dividends, I had to pay 15% because Malta in that case where I was residing had a double taxation agreement with the US. Mm-hmm. When we invest in these 500 or 1,000 of companies through an index, what we're receiving is the dividend from the index, not from these companies. Yeah. So it depends on the agreement that your country has with the domicile of the fund itself. Mm-hmm. And that plays into an important yeah. role in terms yeah. of taxation. For sure. And did you find any, like, I, I know Ireland is a good one, Luxembourg. Yeah. Yeah. So are those so, the big two? Yeah. Those are the big two. Uh, and the reason being is that they don't charge neither Ireland nor Luxembourg charges foreign investors a dividend tax nor a capital gains right. tax. Withholding tax. Yeah, withholding tax, yeah. Um, and so that's yes. why you'll see that the majority of funds are domiciled in Ireland or Luxembourg uh, for precisely this reason. Ireland has the additional advantage that it has, a, just like Malta, it has a, a double tax treaty with the US. And so for Irish funds, they only have to pay 50% dividend tax on American equities, whereas for Luxembourg doesn't have it. So they have to pay 30% tax. So it makes us... So we need to keep in mind the the tax that we'll be paying on the dividends, but also the underlying tax that the fund would have paid on the dividends it receives from all these companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's. uh, I mean, this, this whole conversation is one of the reasons why I think so few people invest (laughs) <laughs> it's really, really <laughs> complex. It's uh, unnecessarily complex, I think. Uh, it's really a shame, but, you know, it's, it's just reality. And so when we talk about bonds, do they work exactly in the same way? The same funds, percentage, tax, everything? Uh, yes, pretty much. Some countries tax bond funds differently than equity funds, but like you buy them the same way. You know, they're packaged as ETFs, so you buy them, you know, you trade them the same way as you trade like stock uh, funds. And so based on your backtest research, did you come up with a percentage of stocks and bonds that one should buy or how do, how do you make up the ratio? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's no perfect, again, like this, you know, it really depends on your personal situation or like the risk again. And but like I said, it's just so hard to make, uh, you know, to know that for yourself. So I don't, I don't have the authority. I don't think anyone has the authority to say like, oh, this is, mm-hmm. you know, this is the one and only percentage you should go for. And like, that's the one. So in my case, I have like 80 20 ratio. So 80% equities, 20% bonds. And I honestly, like, since I haven't been through a financial recession, yeah. I don't know if this is right. So it's, like the rough rule is you take the your age, right? And that would be the percentage of money you'd put into bonds. Into bonds, yeah. Yeah, that's that's yeah. that's a good rule of thumb. Yeah. Yeah. If if that's you know so you're going a bit more risky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't know any other information, then that's probably the a good rule of thumb to go for. <laughs> good yeah, starting I mean, but yeah. I, I wouldn't agonize in any case I wouldn't agonize too much over it anyway. You know, whatever like as long as you start investing, I would say it's fine. You know, it's better than just leaving on your savings account. And how about the question of when to invest? Like market timing is not a good practice in general, but when we're hearing so much about like the upcoming crisis that's yeah. overdue, yeah. like if I have a lump sum, would you 
think it's better to invest it and see what happens kind of or wait out or invest bit by bit? Yeah, I would probably I'd probably invest a bit by bit because then you reduce your sensitivity to the timing. Did this come out in the backtest tool or is it something? Yeah, yeah it does bit? actually. Yeah? yeah. So when you look at the difference of when you start investing, it can make a big difference. For instance, I mean, concretely, like if you had invested right, like a lump sum, like say it's 10,000 euros right before the financial crisis, I forget what the exact numbers were, but like you had maybe a, like a 2% return over 10 years. Maybe I'm wrong, but like it was fairly low. But if you had invested right when the market was at lowest, like six months later, not even that much longer later, then it went up to like 12%, something like, like something like really, really high on a annual return. And so by spreading it out over multiple months or multiple years, you can actually reduce that sensitivity. So you, you probably lower, you know, you lower your maximal gains, uh, cause you don't invest it all in one, one time, like at the lowest period, but also you lower your risk of, of really investing at the wrong time. But like when, you know, when people are scared to invest because of the impending crisis, I think you should also think about the returns that you're missing. You know, if you're waiting, like four years ago, people were saying like, oh, next year, you know, it's going to be the crisis. Whereas like 2019 was a, a great year. Most portfolios had like an above 10% return. So if, if you had your money on savings account all this time, because yeah, you're scared of, you know, it's going to be the, maybe your, you know, the returns you would have missed out on would have been greater than, you know, the eventual, the possible like downturn you would have experienced after. So I wanted to reiterate that these, all the, the, the funds you mentioned are all, all world, right? Yes. And so when we speak about all world, how about like the developing countries? Would they have a smaller percentage of, uh, of companies since they're still developing? Yeah. No, that's, that's, uh, that's true. So in both funds, uh, both indexes, I believe, I'm pretty sure the emerging markets takes up 10% of the total index, like market cap. One of the funds you mentioned, the yes. emerging markets yes. and bonds or? So in bonds, no. In bonds, no, because Again, like the role of the bonds in your portfolio is to stabilize your portfolio. So to limit the volatility. And so bonds of emerging markets are very volatile. You know, when you think about bonds of Argentina, for instance, you know, they're incredibly volatile. That's why in your bond portion, you want to stay with like safe nations or like strong nations in terms of economic economic power. So this emerging markets one, which one would it be? Which fund that's the MSCI? Yeah, so both of them already have emerging markets in them. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. When we buy, like, do we invest in euros, Europeans, or in dollars, or do we choose? It's always best to buy funds in your currency because then you don't have to, you don't lose money on the conversion. You know, if you would buy funds like in pounds on the London Stock Exchange, but you live in Spain, you would have to convert it back to euros somehow. You know, you would lose money there. So the best thing is just to buy in your currency i mean implicitly if you know if you buy like an index a world index fund the actual stocks will be in all kinds of currency you know you'll be uh you have american funds you have british funds or american companies british companies chinese japanese companies Australian companies so you'll already be exposed to all kinds of of currencies perhaps i missed the step so let's say we agreed on which stocks and bonds to have and we want to buy what do we do (laughs) Yeah, I was going to ask that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, 
So the way you do it, you, you have to go through a, a broker. So broker is a company that has access to the different exchanges in the world or in, in Europe. So an exchange is where you can trade funds. So, you know, that's where buyers and, and sellers meet. That's when we'll see a movie is where lots of activity on a, on a floor, people shouting. That was the yeah, old exactly. way of doing it. But yeah, that's the old way. Just to have an like, idea what, what the exchange means. Exactly. <laughs> now it's a uh, computer shouting at each other. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that's the idea. So broker is, is the company that gives you access to those and they provide a very easy interface. So you don't have to shout yourself, but they do all the shouting for you. And so, uh, so yeah, there, I mean, there are several brokers in, uh, there's lots of different brokers in, in Europe, which again is another, <laughs> another point to make a decision. And really the, the main differentiator is, is price. So a broker, you know, it doesn't work for free. So for doing the shouting for you, it, it charges you a, a commission fee. So per transaction that you do, uh, it charges you a certain fee and different brokers have, have different fees. Like what's the catch with the zero fee brokers? What's the catch there? The one thing that they do is, uh, one way they, they make money. It's actually a very interesting question. I'll say something else after, but like the one thing that they do is through securities lending. So when you can either buy a stock, but you can also, it's called shorting. So shorting is when you, so when, when you buy a stock, you want it, the price to go up because you buy a low price and then you wait a bit and then you want to sell it at a lot, lot at a higher price. Sorry. With shorting, you do the opposite. So you buy it at a higher price, but then you, well, actually, no, sorry. You kind of sell it at a higher price and then buy it at a lower price, but that doesn't make any sense. So how do you do that? Basically, you say, I, I tell you, Jean, like, I think Tesla is going to go down. Like now it's trading at 300 euros. I think it's going to go down to 200 euros. So I tell you, just give me your, you lend me your, your shares of Tesla. Give me 10 of your shares. And so I sell them straight away for 300 euros. And then when it's down at 200 euros, I can buy them back. And I tell you, Jean, here's your shares back, your Tesla shares. But for that, for that service that you do me, you lend me your shares. You're going to charge me a sort of fee, like an interest, you know? And so that's how some brokers make money. So when you buy shares, they're actually going to start lending it to other people. And that is going to subsidize them charging like very low fees for their services. And they're hoping that they have enough bulk not to end up losing the original share. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. And there's actually a really interesting article by a person named Patrick McKenzie who analyzed yeah. the revenue streams of uh, the four biggest brokers in the US and who analyzed like what, you know, how do they make money? And a minority was actually from commission fees. So it's actually really interesting if you want to know more about how brokers work and, you know, how, where the revenue comes yeah, I from. I think I had read this article. Okay. Yeah. You maybe can add to the notes. Or... So like the Jira in Europe is one of these brokers that does this yeah because I, I i yeah try to use it and then i got confused because i don't know if that's bad or good <laughs> how what's the risk you yeah know? yeah and that's and the thing. It's, it's a, for the investor yeah yeah it's a risk and as it's hard to you know you have to really think about it like what is the risk like for me you know as an investor is it worth the risk or is it not worth the risk and i i don't really have an answer for that uh, so I, I opted not to do it. So they have two types of accounts, uh, basic and okay. custody. And so one of basically one of them, you say, yeah, it's okay. You can lend my, my securities. And the other one, 
you say, no, I, you know, don't do that. So I picked the, the safer one. Okay. So once we chose a broker, then it's time to buy. What do we buy exactly? Okay. So assuming that you, you know, which indexes you want to buy, you know, the ratio and you know, the exact funds, like you've chosen, you know, for every index, you've, you've analyzed the different funds. You're like, okay, I want to buy, you know, this one. So every fund has an Eisen code, which is a unique identifier. Uh, so every fund has a different Eisen code. And then in your broker, you can search for that Eisen code and then you get, you know, you get to a page where you can say, I want to buy. You calculate how much of each share you want to buy according to your, your predefined ratio, your equities, fixed inc- or like bonds splits. And then, uh, yeah, then you can just, uh, you buy them. Then there's different types of, you know, ways you can, you can buy them. Like there's like market orders, limit orders. Uh, stock yeah, market. Don't get into that. But Zoldan online. Zoldan through the broker. Right. Yeah. yeah, online. Yeah, on the broker. So like broker. a simple example, if I have a thousand euro and I'm going to split them 50-50 between stocks, mm-hmm. I would choose one of the, ma- the funds you mentioned, for example, go to a broker and buy 500 euro worth of the FTSC, for example, yeah. and 500 euro worth of the euro bond fund. Yeah which uh, I don't remember the name. So that's the way I would do it. And then every month, if I want to keep adding, is that, is that can be done automatically or do you have to go and do it manually? Um, As far as I know, brokers, at least brokers I've seen, they don't have a way to do it automatically. I have to do it manually. So I do have a, like a permanent order that automatically transfers the money to my brokerage account. But then I mm-hmm. still need to go through this process of buying them manually. So the order is from the bank to the broker. Yeah, that one's automatic. Yeah. So the funds would be denominated in euro, no dollars yes. or anything. Yes. So then we buy and then we keep investing every month. And that's it. That's it for, for ah, a while. the rebalancing, though. <laughs> the rebalancing. What about the yes. rebalancing? Yes. Yeah. That's it for a while. So you probably stay for a year and then, <laughs> yes, yeah, so the rebalancing. So. Uh, it's quite a simple concept. So, you know, imagine you, you have a 50 50 split. So, you know, 50% equities, 50% bonds. And then you see like, like the bonds, for instance, have gone down by 5% throughout the year and the equities have gone up by 10%. So, and then imagine like instead of 50 50, the, the, the ratio becomes 60 40. So now suddenly you're invested in 60% equities and only 40% bonds. So that's a, it's a different portfolio in terms of risk. So you want to bring it down to your intended ratio, which is 50-50. So in this case, so that's the act of rebalancing to bring it back to the intended allocation. And so in this case, you would have to sell some of your equities to bring it down from 60 to 50% and buy more bonds to bring it, to bring it back up from 40 to 50. And one thing why, one reason why we don't do that every month is to also keep the fees down because you're going to pay no one needs to sell and buy yeah there's there's a fees aspect even if you don't so that's something i realized actually with with backtest one of the analysis i did is i simulate all these different rebalancing strategies so going from rebalancing every month rebalancing every six months every year every two year then look at the tolerance rate you know if it goes out of ratio like more than five percent ten percent fifteen percent like all these different scenarios i tested and even if you don't take into account transaction costs monthly rebalancing is still not good i think it's because there's a sort of momentum in the markets and so 
if like the market's going up, like equities is going up, it's going to keep going up for multiple months at a time, mostly. So if you sell too early, if you rebalance too early, then you miss out on potential returns that you would have missed. So it's actually better to, from what I found from the data is to rebalance. It's better to rebalance less frequently rather than more frequently. And then if you take into account commission fees, like transaction costs, clearly it's even uh, bigger. Right. So easy enough, Gabby. Uh, <laughs> I mean, now please tell me, Aaron, that you created that tool that simplifies all this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, we've been talking about this for an hour and uh, I've been trying to, you know, to make things understandable, but I understand like someone who... No, I mean, first in this, I know like, nothing at all and... I'm, yeah. I'm understanding of it, so. Yeah, and it, I like me, it took me a long time before I, you know, I understand this as well. And so that's, yeah, so it brings us to, uh, to Curvo. So while I was doing all this, I realized like, yeah, I mean, this is way too hard. No wonder, you know, none of my friends are doing this, you know, why everyone just keeps in their savings accounts. And so with my co-founder from Sutori, so the education company, we, uh, we decided to do something about it and to, um, to basically offer a platform which takes care of it all, really. So you sign up, we ask based on questionnaire, so we try to assess your risk profile. So based, you know, as I said, that's very important to know like like what your bonds and equities ratio is gonna be. And so we try to determine what's, you know, take we take your risk into account, but also like your financial situation, your age, what's your objective for investing, like how long you're going to invest your money for. And based on that, we recommend your portfolio. And then you just transfer the money. You can do either automatic like monthly investments or just lump sums, however you want. And it's all like invested for you in the right funds. So at first we're going to launch in just in Belgium. The regulation is already very much a pain in just a single country. So we'll see, uh, you know, we have the ambition to expand to other countries in Europe, but it's already uh, very hard to get started in one country. But we really pick the right funds, you know, based on the tax, all the stuff I said during this conversation, we pick the right funds for you. Uh, we do all the rebalancing, all that we do it automatically. And so it's really to, yeah, to, to have more people invest in, in index funds. So we don't try to beat the market. We don't claim we're doing any financial wizardry or anything. It's all very simple index funds. So that's why we can also offer it for, for very cheap compared to what banks charge. So does this replace the broker or is this another step before the broker? It's kind of a, a layer on top of the broker. Okay. You know, if you go through a broker, you still have to know which funds to buy. You have to do, you know, go through the process manually. You have to figure out your own, the indexes you're going to invest in, the allocation. And so all that is, is taken care of. So you don't really need any financial expertise. You know, if you invest with us, you can kind of forget this whole conversation that we had for the last hour because you don't really need to know. Very it. convenient. <laughs> I think one of the also one of the advantages is that you, given the volume that you would have, you would also be able to get the lower fees that are reserved to in institutional investors. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, long term, that's definitely gonna gonna be a thing uh, at the start. We start from nothing, so not yeah. so much. But one thing we already see is that we can combine transactions into buying in bulk. So the transaction fees are, are going to be pretty neg negligible for uh, even from the start. So that's already an advantage that we see. Very interesting. All right. So the website is already live? Or Yes. Yes. So there's, uh, it's on curvo.eu. So C-U-R-V-O.eu. Yeah. So we have... 
uh, waiting list right now because we are still, we're building out the products and we're still in the process of getting the license. So there's a lot of regulatory red tape to go through. The finance sector is, is very heavily regulated and it's a good thing for sure. But it's also, uh, yeah, it's also annoying when you're a small company uh, trying to move fast. There's a lot of yeah. bureaucracy involved. But uh, now we're, we're making good progress. And the big advantage is that we, you know, we have all the, the development skills and, and the marketing skills within the team. So we can, on that front, like the product side, we can move, move really fast. Gabby, do you have any other questions from your end? Um, no, but I found this very informative. So thanks. And yeah, I'm eager to learn more about this. So for those who are eager to learn more, <laughs> learn more you can visit uh, yourrambronsema.com. You can join the waitlist at curvo.eu. And are there any other books or websites that we should follow to get into this? I mean, there's a, there's a couple of, there's one book that I found really good. It's by a uh, rigid Danish author. Uh, his name is Lars Kroyer. He used to be a hedge fund manager, actually a successful one in London during the, like the last decade in, in the 2000s. And he, um, now he's actually, he's, he's become an author. So he's advocating for passive investing. So I think that's also testimony that even a hedge fund manager whose job was to beat the market says, like, it's incredibly difficult. Even I had a hard time and he was very good at it. And so he wrote a book called, uh, Investing Demystified. He talks about, you know, a lot of the stuff that we talked about it now, but he explains it in, in, uh, you know, in a very, very approachable very like beginner friendly way let's say if i would recommend one book to more geared towards beginners it would be that one investing demystified excellent okay so thank you very much for all the explanations and yeah. best of luck with the platform thank you very much <laughs> thanks, thanks for uh, thanks for the talk all right thank you bye-bye thank you so much for listening to another episode of mastermind.fm if you liked what you heard in today's episode, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your feedback encourages us to keep producing the kind of content that you have come to rely on for your own entrepreneurial journey. And if you have a question or topic you'd like us to cover on the show, send it to us through our website or via email at podcast at mastermind.fm or even connect with us on Twitter at mastermind.fm. We look forward to hearing from you and hope you have a fantastic week.